Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Career I chose doesn't necessarily facilitate too much healing, really. But I do think there's probably a journey of discovery for, for me to do. But when you play top-level sport as well, it is about creating that aura of invincibility as well, isn't it? Which, I mean, no one is invincible. So you've got to you've got to almost put that kind of... Persona. Uh, that persona that, that, that you're indestructible, which clearly you're not. It is about shutting down. What's the real you and what's the gladiator that goes out there, you? Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. This podcast has a simple mission, to have discussions that reveal something important about life and how best to live it. My guests range from the biggest sporting names on the planet through to neuroscientists, philosophers, psychologists and world-renowned thinkers. We talk about things like how to skillfully relate to uncomfortable thoughts and feelings, the power of acceptance and psychological flexibility, how to get your circadian rhythms in sync to feel your best, right through to the nature of reality. These conversations and the bite-sized episodes have the power to change your life. Before we get into this episode, I just want to say it's good to be back and thank you for joining me. As many of you know, I've taken a break from releasing longer episodes for a wee while while I've been working on my book. I'm back now in a position to be releasing full-length conversations, and I'm so excited to be able to do so. I've got some really great episodes coming up, including with some of the world's top experts and thinkers, so please do go ahead and hit the subscribe button if you haven't done so already. Themes I'll be covering include trauma and the most accessible and powerful way I know to release stress and tension that is nowhere near as well-known as it should be. We'll be exploring the potential healing power of psychedelic medicines, as well as the true source of happiness and of course, how to bring more acceptance into your life. I'm always looking to broaden the scope of this podcast, but I don't want to ever completely lose touch with my sporting roots having initially launched this podcast as Don't Tell Me The Score on the BBC back in 2018. 
So I'm kicking this season off with a British sporting icon, Lawrence Delalio. Lorenzo, Bruno, Nero Delalio, to give him his real name, won 85 caps playing rugby for England. And he was a crucial player as England won the World Cup back in 2003. What I find so interesting about Lawrence is that he is certainly not cut from typical rugby playing cloth. It was the tragedy of losing his older sister in the Marchioness boating disaster of 1989 when he was just 16 that ended up propelling Delalio to pursue a rugby career. Lawrence Delalio is the sort of person who wears his heart on his sleeve and as well as being a world-class athlete, he can certainly talk to and it was a real pleasure recording this conversation. So here is Lawrence Delalio. Lawrence Delalio, it's fantastic to have you on the show. Thanks for coming on. And I just think it's important to establish my rugby credentials at the outset. So I was a back in my playing days, a tackle avoiding fly half to be precise, albeit one with a decent sidestep in my locker. But the truth is, I never completely understood what was going on up front with the forwards. But still, you were without doubt one of my favourite international forwards of all time. The marauding run you made in the 2003 Rugby World Cup final up towards the Australian 22 ahead of Jason Robinson's unforgettable try in that first half is seared into my memory, as is your passion while playing. But I know a million odd people will have paid compliments like that to you over the years. So does it get tedious? And how does someone in your position stop believing the hype and remain humble and grounded? Because a lot of elite athletes aren't able to do so. Well, I mean, listen, we're... We all have an ego to a certain extent, and uh, you know, there's times when um, when I've allowed gone a little bit ahead of myself. But I think rugby, hopefully, is one of those sports that that keeps you a bit more grounded. I mean, first and foremost, it was never really a career choice for me. I didn't mean to play professional rugby. Given the choice, getting your face smashed in all around the world is 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 definitely overrated. I was um, moving along quite nicely. Got it, you know. Was at university. Was was doing a degree. I got qualified as a as a chartered surveyor, and I was you know happily um, you know moving into the property world. And and who knows where I would have gone thereafter. But um, obviously, sport was a big part of my life growing up. Was a big part of my you know. I thought I was good at football, and then you play against someone who's really good, and you realise that you're not very good. I guess if you can catch, you play rugby. So I was I played sport and I and I enjoyed it and it was very much part of my upbringing with the lack of technology that existed when we were growing up. And I'm 50, by the way. You'd go out and you climb trees and you play football and you you know your 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 life was very much physical activity all the way through your childhood. So I suppose um, the journey into professional rugby is it was a strange one for me because I look at some of the young players who play now that all they've ever wanted to do is be professional rugby players. Uh, it was very much the opposite. You know, I was in a generation where when the game went professional, uh, I was 22 years of age and it was something that I was doing on a Tuesday and a Thursday night as a bit of a hobby, um, uh, enjoying it. You know, a real melting pot of characters and individuals played on a Saturday like any amateur rugby player. Might have had a few jars after the game and and, uh, and back to work again. So to suddenly go into that professional rugby environment in the early days, 1995 I'm talking about, and then I went on this kind of journey for about 20 years um, and never really looked back. Uh, and it was it's always quite fast-paced, fast-moving. And I feel very, very honoured, very privileged, really, to have played the game at the time when it, it was um, quite historic, if I'm honest. Uh, oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. Six years as, a profession, as an amateur rugby player and very much enjoyed all of those years uh, and then had 13 years as a, as a professional. Well... 
semi-professional and then professional, what you call professional, really. I mean, nowadays, you know, but sometimes less is more, you know. <laughs> Absolutely less is more. And I know that that was an attitude and an outlook that really served you and your teammates at the club level really well when the game went from amateur into professional at that juncture. My coach, Nigel Melville at Wasps at the time, he said, how many hours a week do you reckon we should, we should get everyone in? And I went, I don't know. You know we sat there with a blank sheet of paper. I mean, we, we've been doing like two hours on a Tuesday and two hours on a Thursday evening. And then I said to him, well, presumably like the most important day is like game day, right? So let's work backwards from there. You know, it's, uh, when you're in professional sport, it's a results-driven business. It's about the outcome. So, um, you know, the process is obviously part of that. So we, we sort of work backwards. And I think a lot of mistakes were made in the early years of, of professional sport. You know, we certainly didn't overtrain. I think it was important just to, because when you're transitioning from doing very little to suddenly bringing guys in all the time, there can be a bit of information overload sometimes. So uh, we've yeah. got it right. You know, just, Do you think there's a lesson to learn from that, Lawrence, in terms of, you know, not overdoing it, whether it be a sports team, but even like culturally? Because I was thinking of your upbringing, okay? Obviously, your father is Italian, your mother was uh, East End Irish, but... You know, the Italian way of life, for example, I remember speaking to Sir John Cohen, who, who married into an Italian family, and he found the change in pace fascinating and, you know, breaking bread, the long dinners, all that kind of thing. So is there a lesson about not going at a million miles an hour like we tend to do, whether it be in sport or life here? Yeah, I think there is. And I think there's a, I mean, look, every, every, every country has a slightly different approach to life, to living, to, to, to their work, to their work-life balance, et cetera, et cetera, you know. You know, we Brits, particularly if you live in, 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 a, in, say, the capital of London, you know, we live life very fast. Whereas the Italians like to, you know, slow down. And, you know, it's not to say they're not dynamic, but there's certain breaks in the day that are sacrosanct. And whether you, whether, you know, whether you like it or not, that's going to happen. Sometimes that can be very frustrating. Um, you know, you go down the road. What do you mean you close for two hours? You need to sleep. It's 34 degrees outside. So I think there's, there's, a, there's a balance, isn't there, to be struck between, between that, you know, that, that pace and that way of life. But but I all I would say is that when it's time to work, you work very hard. But when you leave the training ground or the training field or whatever whatever office or whatever you want to call it, I think it is important to obviously rest and relax, but also to, certainly when I was playing in my career, to find things that, that stimulate your brain in a different way. You know, To switch off, yeah. Switch off, but, but switch off doesn't mean sit, go sat back. No, of course. PlayStation and lying on the sofa, although, you know, that's okay, by the way, for the small periods of time. But actually, just to recognize that you're in a bit of a bubble and you've got to get yourself out of that bubble as well. And, and uh, for me, I was very emotionally linked to performance and outcome. And some people might argue, even within my own family, maybe a little bit too emotionally linked to it. I took my job very seriously. I realized that sport is about emotion. It's about agony or ecstasy. There's, you either win or you lose. And if you win, you know, you're happy and everyone else around you is happy. And actually, you have this ability to, to change the course of the next seven days for people. You know, they have a, they have a pretty good working week if, they, if their team have won at the weekend. Uh, we can certainly get them off to a good start. And, and conversely, you know, they, they feel that kind of pain and that misery as much as you do. So it really meant a lot to me. I, I hated losing. I was embarrassed by it. I felt um, ashamed. I felt I'd let people down. I felt I'd let myself down. And I come home and I'd be playing the game in my head and, you know, what could I have done better? What could they have done better? And actually, we all want to do our job really well, no matter whether you're, you know, if you're a journalist, you're whatever you might do, rugby player, whatever it might be, nurse, 
we're all good at something. Some of us are lucky enough to find out what that is. And, and obviously, success doesn't always happen overnight and you have to continually strive and develop for improvement. But it's a lot easier doing a pretty tough sport like rugby if, if you're winning. It's a tough game. Rugby's a tough sport. Everyone sees the glamour, the, the celebrations, and they hear about the stories, which are you know, which are all great. But there's a lot of other sides of professional sport, not just rugby, all sports. The sacrifice that you have to make, the collateral damage around your family, because it's a very selfish career, because uh, it's all about you. Now, that's certainly what I found anyway. For 18 years, my family didn't have a proper weekend. I mean, sure, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of sacrifice that goes into that. And I think that has to be worth it, is what I mean. Because otherwise, yeah. why, why would you do all of that? You talk about the emotion. Obviously, I've, everyone knows how emotional you were. And I'll come more to that. And obviously, part of that comes from the Italian heritage. But turning to the Irish side and your mum's side, mm. she was clearly a, a real force of nature, wasn't she? I know she was full of great quotes, whether it be you can catch up on sleep, you can't catch up on a good night, which explains your love of a good night out, as well as the greatest gift in the world is to make every interaction a special one. I know that was another one she came out with. So in terms of traits, what did you take from your mother? Well, listen, I was I was lucky in, in one regard that I was born into a house of, of really two things I got from my parents. One was unconditional love which um, as a parent of, of three children of my own is an easy thing to say it's a hard thing to give when I mean unconditional love I mean when the police used to knock on the door my mother would go oh not my Lawrence she must have the wrong house you know what I mean <laughs> but no I mean literally the, the emotional side you know my parents used to used to outward displays of emotion and affection which was very un-English very un-British certainly yeah. and a belief system that anything and everything is possible and attainable and you can go out there and and, and achieve anything. And look, you know, I don't come from a traditional, well, I don't know what traditional is anymore, but white middle class, you know, sort of elites. I don't know what, what the perception of rugby is. You know, my mum and dad had a sweet shop in, in Bethnal Green. My dad was Italian. My mum was Irish. There was no kind of, you know, born into a, into a certain level of, of, of entitlement in any way whatsoever. My mum was out to work at the age of 14. That, that generation grew up in the war. She had four or five different jobs. Big East End family. And a big Italian family as well, my dad's side. So I think that kind of family plays a big part in in, in my upbringing. Um, you know, yeah. big gatherings. It was pretty special, but more importantly, belief. Really, my mum was a real believer, and she had to fight all the way through her life to to achieve many things. You know, then she had obviously the the grief of losing her daughter, my sister, and the Marchioness, and even then she was fighting all the way to the end. So, you know, that kind of encouragement and belief was really strong and if I look at my own career people say to me you know what's what's the secret to winning and I always say for me the secret to winning is believing you can win because if you don't believe then there's no point in taking the field is there really and not everyone in the team believes you can win every game trust me and it's about making sure that they do by the time it, you kick off I mean there's this process that you have to then a journey that you have to go on every week to convince yourself and equally convince your teammates that that's possible and, and for me technically I, I understood the game of rugby I think uh, tactically I learned a lot more about it as I got more experienced and those elements of the game are really important but actually fundamentally the most important part of it is about what's going on in your head and what's going on in your heart I'm very much driven by the head and the heart and the connection between those two things because it's very emotional rugby and men are quite simple human beings. Um, On the surface. Well, there's, there's a lot of vulnerability in all of us. Oh, and yeah. uh, 
we all have doubts. We all have self-doubt. We have, we're all nervous. We all get these, I'm not good enough sort of feelings. Yeah. Inner critic. Yeah. Yeah. How can I achieve it? But in a group environment, I think it's really powerful to lay your own vulnerabilities out in front of the group. I really do believe in, the, in that power, that emotional power. Yeah, I, I spoke to a coach. I can't actually remember who it was who said he saw you before a match on a Saturday in the change rooms going out and he saw this. He had absolutely no doubt that there was any chance of defeat from the look in your eyes. But not everyone was like that. I remember speaking to Johnny and Johnny would be, you know, as you know, a bag of nerves. And yet when he went out onto the pitch, it would sort of switch. But um, obviously we spoke about your mum and your dad and, and you touched on the tragedy of the Marchioness disaster. Could you just tell me what? Your older sister, Francesca, who obviously you tragically lost in 1989 when she was 19 and when you were 60, what was she like? Uh, well, listen, an amazing, um, an amazing young girl who, who really dedicated her life to her, you know, to, to, to her, you know, her passion, which was she was a ballet dancer, you know, from the age of five, six. She was in the Royal Ballet School, no lessons, just got, got accepted straight away, which was incredible, really. And then, you know, just worked tirelessly throughout her whole uh, life, you know, um, and she's got a scholarship, which allowed my parents to then send me to a, you know, fee-paying rugby school, which I would never have gone anywhere close to had that not happened. Um, I had a great relationship with her, even though I didn't spend a lot of time with her or see her very often. Um, and, um, yeah, she, she was, you know, got honours in every single exam. was just about to embark on, on her life, really, and then, you know, got invited on a, on a disco boat and, and never came back. So it was a, you know, it was a, it was a tough, really, really tough time for all of us. Um, you know, everyone, ho hopefully life is on an upward trajectory, but the sad thing is that there are, you know, there are uh, moments that, that occur in all of our lives. Um, and, and one of those, you know, seismic moments happened quite early on in our life. And it was really tough for a, for a very tight knit family to lose one member of that family. And then, and then have to sort of carry on made it made it really really difficult my my, my parents were devastated and and you know as as a father of three children having to bury one of your own children it would just be well you, do, you can't even bear thinking about it really so it was tough yeah. and actually you know i i, I you know not, not a lot of people know this I, I sort of you know went off the rails as you would do for a couple of years not so you know making some bad decisions you know not really you know, still questioning the reason why, you know, life was so unfair as as you would do as well. And then I think I got to a point around about 1990 where I thought I need to, you know, maybe 91, I thought I need to sort my shit out. And and really joining Wasps at that time was was kind of what I needed, really. I needed something to to help me, to guide me to, you know, a bit of an, a family, a bit of a community. Um, and also I, I felt a bit of pressure to do something to really bring my parents and drive my parents back together because my sister had been that person really the the, the eldest sibling and the one that you know that, that everyone looked up to uh, and obviously she was gone and and uh, and I was always the little bit of a rogue anyway um and um yeah and so rugby really was was a was was a a, a focal point for all of us to be honest yeah. with you it probably had more meaning for me in my life than maybe a lot of other players necessarily. I mean, everyone everyone has a different journey, a different story, and you know, uh, I, I've I've heard quite a few of my my colleagues, you know, deliver their story. But for me, it was about um, yeah, it, it, I, I was driven by a much higher purpose than just rugby. About honouring, you know, the life of my sister, and every every time I played, there was always that emotional connection to why I was here. Um, yeah, and I would very clear to the players that I played with, uh, and I'd ask them. And challenge them to 
to to tell me you know why they were there um yeah which i think brings out a lot more truth really than uh than we than we get to see i heard you actually talking about the o3 final when there's the famous shot of you crying in the national anthem and speaking yeah. about that and that being you know a, a nod to obviously yeah. your sister and, and, and your family and, and all that and, that, and it was incredibly powerful to know you know you had such a, a deep why didn't you to to, yeah, to drive you yeah and 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 there's nothing wrong with that i mean sometimes it's very genuine and sometimes in rugby when it's every week you have to find the why you know <laughs> uh and sometimes you you know so, because if it's every week you can't you know you can't use that every week um there's a process that i think you learn how do you get yourself in the in the right physical mental emotional state to do that every single week very did, tough so did you nail that process down how, how what was it in a nutshell i think in the bigger games like a world cup final i think everything comes in you know there's no need to sort of concern yourself with any of the process because it just happens organically and naturally big games you know just deliver that kind of the natural emotion anyway but when you've got to repeat it in uh, i don't know rotherham away it can be a different process you know and i think there's triggers and levers that you learn as a professional sportsman to to push and pull about yourself and about other people not to become too fixated on on a particular process as well because there's an enormous amount of flexibility required in in sport you know your turn I, I used to go drive to games as, as captain of my club and i'd be thinking you know you know what am i going to say you know that's going to elevate this to make to you know to, that could potentially make the difference and i'd have this journey for about 40 minutes out to wickham and and I'd have all these ideas in my head because I never planned anything. I never wrote anything down. I always think that's a dangerous thing to do, really. It's got to come from the heart, doesn't it? In the moment. Well, I mean, certainly, in, in, yeah, it does. And, and actually, it's much more authentic when it does um, yeah. because uh, it's just, you know, people can see that as well. Uh, well, I'm thinking of your 97 Lions. There's the Lions speech you gave in 97. Again, your lip trembling. And you can see there was no way that that was premeditated. That was right there in that moment. But also there's times when you think you're going to say something and it's really important. Then you arrive at the ground and you go into the changing room and everyone has got this feeling where, you know, you and you almost say, actually, I don't need to say very much at all today. And you really don't because you could see could just feel it i don't know you can feel that everyone is ready to go and then there's other times when when you walk into a dressing room and you know you know that everything people are just a little bit off and everyone looks like it's all a little bit too easy and, and that's when that's when you challenge yourself to go well actually maybe maybe i do need to maybe i do need to do something here i mean sometimes i pick on people you know pick on myself pick on other people you know and use that as a as a catalyst for the to get to get into the level of emotion required because it's not easy to wage war every single week. No. Uh, maybe, maybe the professional rugby player has got a much different switch these days, you know, like turning on a light switch. But it still can't be easy. I mean, clearly, as I said, in 03, you could see the emotion coming through. And, and obviously, when I was listening to you talk about how that related back to your family and what happened, yeah. uh, you so know, with your sister and mum and dad. and We spent a lot of time as a group together as well, you know, the... Another one of the, another key to success is about consistency. Well, trust and consistency, I think, are two really important things. You know, I played eighty-five times for England. I didn't play great in every game. I could have easily been relinquished to my responsibilities, dropped, whatever you want to call it, uh, which I was on one occasion because everyone gets dropped, um, or more than one occasion, in fact. But what I'm saying is, you, if you have a group of players and you invest in them and, and you trust them, 
um, and you're consistent with the messaging that you can deliver them. I think there's a chance of growth within that group. And the, the longer you keep that group together, the more likely it is that they're going to win. Um, and and we had a we had a group that started with Clive Woodward in '97. Of course, there's going to be you know people coming in, people coming yeah. out. Uh, but the changed. core of it was the same, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, from '97 to 2003, we had a journey. You know, we we did some uh, we did some really bad things. We we had some some heartache, uh, as inevitably everyone does. But ultimately, we got to where we wanted to get to as a group. And I think. Obviously, on the field, that's important, you know, and that's all there in the stats. But actually, off the field, we we, we all went through different um, highs and lows, you know, of tragedy, you know, all sorts of different things personally. And I think once you, when you have that emotional connection personally together as a group, it fosters something much more powerful. Uh, and rugby is, you know, I know we spent a lot of time with, you know, the, the armed forces, the special forces, all of that sort of stuff. And I don't want to sound too dramatic, but, you know, if you get on a helicopter and, and we and you end up in Afghanistan or wherever it might be, Ukraine, you know, if you don't do your job, we, we don't get back on the helicopter. You know what I mean? And I think that that is pretty dramatic. But rugby uh, is not a matter of life and death. No one dies, um, but it, you've got to treat it that way as well. You know, we we go out on the field, and, and I think it creates that connection, which is which is you know which is very very special. And, and that's certainly the way I look at it. Um, you know, and and I mean. It's, some people might say that's a little bit far fetched, but I was fascinated by the mindset of, of uh, you know, when we spent time with, you know, the SBS, the SAS, all these guys, the Marines, incredible people, incredible human beings. But literally, as a group, if they've gotten a, a match or an assignment or whatever it is, if someone doesn't do their job, that you know, that might result in two or three people not, not surviving. Yeah. Uh, I think there is an accountability, is what I'm saying with 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 sport. I'd like everyone to be accountable. And, and I think one of the things that I've always struggled with post-sport is understanding the level of accountability or not that does exist in, 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 other, in other careers, in other professions. Because yeah. It's not it clearly is, defined, is it? Well, no, but, but then they're, 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 in rugby, we never had an HR department, did we really? So, uh, you know. No, well, well, you did, didn't you? You get dropped. Well, you sit there with that. That's what I'm saying. You sit there on a Monday morning, so would you like to explain what you were doing on Saturday because it doesn't appear that you were doing your job very well. Life in, in well, life and sport, and sport particularly, is about honest conversations, you know, and being able to have honest like conversations. The, and, yeah, yeah. and, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not singling people out. It's not bullying. It's not systematic bullying. It's nothing like that. It's not creating a culture. You all understand that that's, you know, that it could be me one week, could be you the next week. We have to get past that. You know, if, there, if we lose, there is a reason why we lost and we, um, and we have to accept that. Yeah. learn from it and move on you know yeah no that radical honesty and vulnerability i think that is so evident in elite sport and certainly the best teams you know so many of them i've spoken to whether it be the rugby guys of 03 or the the hockey team in 2016 that was a key part and i do think it, you know the rest of life and business can can learn a lot from that you talked about connection lawrence and and you spoke about how wasps gave you that sense of belonging when you joined them you know in 1990 and you weren't typical in that you weren't like johnny in that you hadn't set a goal to to win the world cup or be the world's best player it kind of in a way rugby found you in those intervening couple of years a brutal few years i think i've heard you talk about shutting down emotionally because obviously you had your own grief to deal with but your parents were grieving as well and you must have been very conscious of that and at such a difficult age 16 as well do you feel like the scars, let's say, of closing down emotionally, is that still with you to a degree? Uh, quite possibly, yeah. I mean, it's um, it, it's 
I'm not sure the career. I mean, the, the career I chose doesn't doesn't hasn't necessarily facilitated too much healing, really. Put it that way, because because in order to I mean, in order to play high level sport, you. I mean, listen, I I did actually have a fair degree of of therapy at the time, and I do think you know child bereavement is 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 very tricky. You know, uh, it's very tricky. You know, when and there's lots of different situations. You know, you've got your parents. In going in one direction or both in my case different directions you know you've got yourself to deal with and you've very much gone from being and then you're the only sibling so there's a degree of responsibility so do feel like I dealt with some of it at the time but no I think uh, I probably um I probably there's probably a journey of discovery for, for me to do but but it's still to do yeah I think so but when you play when you play top level sport as well it is about creating that that aura of invincibility as well isn't it really which which i mean no one is invincible so you've got to you've got to almost put that kind of that mental process that that's uh persona that, that, persona that, that, that you're indestructible um which clearly you're not so yeah I, I think what i'm saying is i'm not sure playing the sport that i chose to play week in week out necessarily helps that process in fact because it is about shutting down it's about certainly turning things off and turning things on uh, when it suits you to do so, and you've got to, you know, you ignore the noise, you ignore the criticism, you ignore everything. You just process the things that you want to process. So, you know, that shutting down process, in in many ways, makes you a better rugby player, but at the same time, it does come at a cost. Yeah, it does, and and also you've got to try and understand what the facts from the fiction. You know, what is what's the real you, and what's the what's the gladiator that goes out there, you, um, and sometimes. Those two people can be a little bit, um, yeah. The overlap can be a little, can go a little bit astray, really. I think um, I'm yeah. not, not really explaining that very well. But what I mean by that yeah. is that, you know, clearly there's a, you know, I, mean, I used to, I used to come back from games of rugby, and my wife would look at me and go, uh, "How'd it go today?" And they go, "Yeah, it went well." She goes, "Did you win?" I said, "Yeah, we won." She goes, "You don't want that one." <laughs> no, so across my face and stitches. I said, "Did you score?" I said, "Look." Not my job to score, really, to be honest with you. But uh, as it happens, I didn't score today. No. <laughs> and then you get, you know, you get your my daughter, my eldest daughter, who's just turned twenty six. You know, she go there, you go. And I just think there's a there's a there's a professional you, and there's a you know there's a there's a private you. And I yeah, think, of course. Uh, you know, going on that emotional roller coaster that I've, that I talk about, and trying to get yourself up for a game and a, and a battle every single Saturday or Sunday, whatever it might be. And then you come back down again, and then you go back up, and you come back down, and you go back up. I think just think about that in your own life for a second. You know, um, emotionally, mentally, physically, you're doing that every single week, right? And you're doing it for, you know, thick end of a couple of decades, right? Uh, with with absolutely very little rest, recuperation, stop. I, th I think the the recovery of all of these things, maybe in the modern era nowadays, I'd like to think the players get a bit better treated a bit better served a bit better resourced a bit better looked after but it certainly wasn't like that in the in the early days because we were all learning no one really understood about concussion no one really understood about mental health no one really understood about injuries to a certain degree you know there was there was so many there were so many things that people we didn't understand so to do that all the time i think inevitably creates a Probably a bit of a disturbing pattern, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a balanced way of living, is it? And just find, Lawrence, on this particular subject, how do you find it talking or reminiscing about what happened with your sister? Is it something that you sort of previously shied away from or how hard is it? 
no, I don't think it's. I don't. Well, I don't find it hard um, because you know it's it's a part of my life that 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 has shaped my life really. So I mean, I often ponder and reflect. You know, would would, would have where would the, you know where would the course of, and path of my life gone? You know, had had that not happened, and did I use that as a as a real driver? Or was I always in? You know, was that was that always going to happen anyway? And and that I can't really answer the question to. But uh, what's your hunch? No. Probably a bit of both. <laughs> my hunch is I was always. I mean, my sister used to say to my mum, "You know, don't worry, he'll come good in the end." You know what I mean? Because <laughs> I was. I think uh, of all of the two siblings, of the two you know siblings, I call I caused my mum and dad the greater early stress in their career put it that way <laughs> so, yeah yeah and i understand that I mean, it was um but i don't have an issue discussing it no but equally i'm very proud of what i've achieved um in my career um but equally i, I don't have to talk about it either i i've achieved other things in my career i mean i always think to myself if i wasn't a professional rugby player i, I would have been something else obviously i would have been professional whatever you know in property in business whatever it might be um, and I'd like to think I'd have been as equally as driven by that as as if it was sport. And for me, the the journey of 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 being successful in sport is about looking forwards. It's not about looking backwards. You know, yes, you've got to look backwards to the week before and reflect and and learn and, and digest the information. And why did why did this happen? Why did that happen? And could we have done this better? And how can we do that better? But it's about moving forward. And and so I don't like to look back too much uh i like to look forward and 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 uh, you know that's not that's not to say i'm not a, someone who can stop and learn but equally um the process of playing doesn't give you that much time for reflection no. yeah i mean you had like three weeks off a year for like the best part of 20 yeah. years didn't you maybe, i mean it's maybe one of the things that um that i still have to to understand within myself is is you know you can't live your life like that anymore <laughs> No, no, no. It's, it's not like about this relentless pursuit of more, ex yeah, or, yeah, or, or yeah. anything. You're like this wrecking ball that he's just, and, and you know, and that's probably, I mean, it's sort of linked to do you like talking about your sister? I don't, I mean, you know, it's it's about moving forward all the time with me, and it always has been. Uh, and it's important that you take time just to, to stop and smell the roses and, and breathe a little bit. That's what I was thinking when I said about bringing some of the Italian way of being into the English way of being, that kind of sense of, you know, at the end of the day, as long as you're breaking bread with people around you that care and, you know, eating good food, that's what it's all about. Rather than, I think, you know, this, in this culture, we are up so full. It's always like, oh, I'll be happy when X happened. Now, just quickly, Lawrence, you mentioned about 20 years yo-yoing up and down. What I find interesting about you is it doesn't seem to me that you struggle with retiring like so many elite athletes do to the same degree. And, and I think perhaps that yo-yoing, getting off that treadmill explains that. But as well, was your identity then not ever really overly bound up in being a rugby player? Was it always, I'm Lawrence, who plays rugby? Whereas a lot of people obviously are like, you know, my identity is I am a rugby player. And without that, I don't know who I am. Um, yeah, no, I, well. Uh, I don't think I was anyway, because it was. Um, I, I always feel that whatever I'd have turned my attention to, that would have I would have ended up wanting to do that to the best of my ability. I mean, I, I suppose the problem is, as you, uh, you know, I'd one of the first of a group of us, the first ever professional rugby player uh, in 1995. The game went professional. That was it. I went, yeah, I'll have some of that, and uh, and almost <clears throat> along with my peers, helped to shape the early early parts of professional rugby. So. 
you can't shy away from that. And and you know you've been part of that kind of Premiership uh, prem, Premiership his, history. You've been part of that international England's history, which culminated in the World Cup. And that's something to be very proud of. And I am proud of it. And it's been really fascinating because I've been talking to all of my colleagues over the last year and a half yeah. around, you know, all my colleagues from 2003 and going, writing this book about us winning the World Cup. And the first part of the book is getting people's reflections 20 years ago, 20 years later on what happened 20 years ago in Sydney. Not the things that have already been reported, but maybe some slightly more uh, unusual and, and 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 uh, interesting observations from from players from all different you know parts of the squad, and then the second part of the book, and I think probably the more fascinating part for me, was do you think it was a good thing that we won the World Cup, and and how how did it change your life, and 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 where are you now type thing, you know, because playing in that tournament meant different things to different people. I'll give you an example. I was lucky enough to play in every single minute of every game, and we won the World Cup. I had a week off afterwards. You know, Warren Gatlin phoned me up. He said, look. You know, probably very <laughs> proud, proud of what you've done. You know, have a good time. Sober up. I need you to play next week. I'll, I'll give you some more time off. We actually went on to win the Premiership title and the European Cup that year. So we, the year started with the World Cup and finished with the Premiership title and the European Cup. Someone like Johnny Wilkinson came back from the World Cup and didn't play for England for another three and a half years. Yeah. He getting so... You know, Martin Johnson retired. That was his last ever game. So 20 years ago was that moment in time. And I don't know. You know, it's just, it just meant different things to different people. Uh, you know, would, and I, I don't think you can, you can't ignore it because it's, it's a moment that changes your life forever. You know, it does, you know, <laughs> I'll get back from, we were at Penny Park, and the, you know, the day we arrived back and, and Johnny said, oh, I'm going to go back to the airport. I said, well, I don't think you should. I said, I think your life's ever going to be the same again. <laughs> he said, what you mean? I understand that, you know, that maybe going back to the airport, you know, on your own was not really good. You'll be absolutely mocked, mate. You know, you have to embrace it for what it, for what it happened. But but sometimes, and listen, in, in, undoubtedly, it is a good thing that we won the World Cup. Of course it is. But we put so much effort into winning it that no one really planned for what life might be like after you won. And certainly not the, the powers that be. I mean, I, I, you know, I won the World Cup at 31. Uh, and you don't suddenly retire just because you're 31 because you won a World Cup. You know, you got to come back and and you got to. And I'm literally, I was playing two weeks later. Mentally, I was okay, and I used almost used the adrenaline of what I'd, we'd done to to propel me forwards for the next couple of years. But yeah. you know, months later, I was captain of England again. We're in New Zealand and Australia, and we get smashed to pieces. And I'm looking around thinking, this isn't quite the same team. So I don't think, I don't think we were particularly well looked after by people. So it, it, it's been a really fascinating journey, but. I'm proud occasionally of talking about what I used to do. I'd rather be Look, proud of talking about what I'm going to do. You know what I mean? And in the future. And, and I want to speak to you about all the things you're up to. So last question, and it's just a brief one on the, on the World Cup and your playing career. In that final, when England were leading and then obviously Elvin Flatley kept pegging it back, when he was stepping up, when you were 17, 14 up, I remember speaking to Johnny about this, and Johnny was obviously someone who would be an anxious bag of nerves often in changing rooms, but he said when Elton Flatley was lining up that 17-14 kick to, to level the scores, and I, I was in uh, Darling Harbour, by the way, at the time, so I was bricking it. I wanted Elton to miss that, but yeah. he was like, we didn't want him to miss that. There was this sense of acceptance, and we don't want to win by Australia losing. You know, we want to actually go out there and win it. Can you recall what you were feeling when Elton Flatley was stepping up to slot that kick? You, were you wishing he was... Uh, 
you going to kick it or what were you going to say? I mean, I mean, Johnny must have had a bit of a crystal ball gazing because, you know, he said that white blow that did that. So, so yes, I mean, I, I agree with the sentiment of what he was saying, but going back to my point about belief, we were a better side than Australia. You know, we'd beaten them six times previously, home and away. So we knew we were a better side. They knew we were a better side. The World Cup final, we just had to go out there and prove it. And Australia, to their eternal credit, having beaten New Zealand in the semi-final, played the best game that they played against us out of those, in the seven times that we played them. Uh, and they pushed us all the way to the wire. And we didn't play so great in certain no. periods of that game. If the truth be known, that match should have been dead and buried by half-time. Probably should have been 10, 15, 20 points ahead. And then, of course, when you come down the tunnel at half-time and you're only, whatever it was, was it six or nine? I think we were nine. Nine, yeah. Nine points ahead. We're thinking, psychologically, we should be so much further ahead than we are. They're thinking, psychologically, oh, my God, we're still in this game. This is is amazing. So, therefore, we actually lost the second half 9-0. I know, I know. So, you know... (laughs) Which obviously makes sense because you know even I did the maths. Uh, but no, I mean I I didn't I didn't at any one moment think, and it's easy with hindsight to say this, but I genuinely mean it that we would lose that game of rugby. And and I think this it's not overconfidence, but we were a superior side and we proved that six out of six times previously, and yeah. we beat them months ago by 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 three tries to one in Melbourne. You know, after that. I remember those matches against New Zealand and Australia that summer, wasn't it? When you won away in Australia and New Zealand. And it was for the first time. It was like, goodness, actually, England, England should win this World Cup. And I still think England winning the World Cup broke a bit of a glass ceiling that enabled a lot of the subsequent British sporting success to come. Because I think it changed a bit of belief across the board. Well, we were the best side in the world for three years. I mean, we lost the odd Grand Slam, which is painful. And, you know... My one regret in my career was that, you know, I won one Grand Slam. I probably should have won three or another two. Um, but we used and fueled those those mistakes and, and emotions to, you know, to, to, to help us get over the line with the World Cup. But we'd beaten everyone home and away. Uh, we, I mean, the Southern Hemisphere particularly, 15, 16 times home and away consecutively from 2000 to 2003. Unreal. But going into a World Cup as the number one side is, is, is a challenge, you know, because everyone plays their best game against you. It, it, it's, a, it's a different type of pressure. On reflection, we didn't play fantastically well against any of those teams in the World Cup, actually. We just did enough to, to, to get over the line. And it'd be, it'd be interesting to see how Ireland do because they've just won a Grand Slam, exactly how we did in 2003. Uh, and they will now go to the World Cup as the number one side in the world. Happy uh, never got she, past the quarterfinals. That's the thing. She, that changes the dial enormously. Uh, yeah, do you know what? I, I, the thing is, though, I think England, when they won... The Grand Slam in 2003 absolutely thrashed Ireland, didn't they, in Dublin? You guys did by about 40 points. Whereas I thought against England, I thought that was Ireland's weakest performance. I thought that was England's best performance up until the red cards. So yeah. From a momentum point of view, I actually think England have something to hang their hat on. Uh, there was a, there was a, there were some characteristics that were the same, actually. Although we won that last game in Dublin, Ireland were going for a Grand Slam as well in 2003. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was about nine, I think it was 9-3 at halftime. Oh, was it? Um, so okay. They'd thrown absolutely everything at us, and we'd managed to absorb that pressure, and and still come out on top. And if you look, you know, if you look at the the game as it stood, you know, Ireland were rattled; they were under pressure. England threw everything at them, but Ireland were able to absorb that and then find a way of of you know take the red card out of it because it's whatever. But they were able to find a way. So, in many ways, I slightly slightly disagree with you there. I think, okay, I, fair. I, I think Ireland are. A, 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 I mean, yes, you're right. They played so so well throughout the tournament 
but it's hard to get the job done. You know, it's, it's, about, it's, it's about peaking, though, isn't it? You know, it's, it's about peaking. I think what it showed, and it probably showed the likes of South Africa and New Zealand, because they all sit up and take notice, is that, you know, if you put people under pressure, everyone is vulnerable. You know? 100%. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. It's fascinating. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, that going back to your original question, I didn't know, I didn't expect us to lose. Um, there was a there was a core steel and belief within our group that we we would get the job done somehow, and we did. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Right, moving forward, uh, Lawrence. So 2008, obviously, your wonderful mother sadly passed away. I know you were with her at the time. And yeah. that's when you set up your charity, am I right in saying? Well, I mean, listen, I wouldn't say they were inextricably linked, but my mum had always taught me to, um, you know, about giving. The greatest gift in the world is giving, whether that is, you know, financially, whether it's emotionally, you know, physically, um, you know, that was important. I spent a lot of time throughout my career as... All, a lot of sports people do associating yourself with various charities that you feel, kind of feel quite passionate about or various campaigns because I genuinely believe that with success comes responsibility and I think it's, you know, I was brought up on the premise that you arrive in this world with nothing and you leave with nothing. That's guaranteed, by the way. And what you do in between is really important and we all chase health, wealth and happiness, which is, um, you know, okay, but it is about you know, giving back as well. And it is about making sure that you need people in a better place than when you arrive and, and responsibly wise. So I, I did a lot, a lot of things for different charities, Wooden Spoon, uh, Help for Heroes, Cancer Research UK, because my mum died of cancer. Uh, and so I, I knew I wanted to do something. Um, I just felt that I was becoming quite a big sort of pot filler for, for charities. And I thought, yeah. well, actually, that's okay. But um, and it's all very worthy and they're all great causes but actually wouldn't it be really nice if I did something that I was passionate about so initially it was the Delalio Foundation you know which was basically raising money to help charities where I was pushing it and you know, it's cancer research but in the end I ended up 
I think it was the two things that were at the core of what I believe was was young people and 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 kind of having a chance that maybe that I was afforded throughout my career my, my career growing up uh and then rugby rugby was always this you know the the hook the stimulus you know it didn't have to be rugby it could have been anything with me I just happened to open a newspaper and thought I'll go and join a rugby club but I could have joined a football club or a boxing club I don't know what it was really so the hook is rugby so I started to sort of do a bit of research in that space and I realized that there's not that many people in that kind of space not that many charities because it's pretty unsexy pretty unglamorous um and that made me even pricked my curiosity even more really so uh, that's where I set up Rugby Works. You know, we work with young kids who have been excluded from mainstream education. I may have been excluded from one or two schools myself over the years. Yeah. But obviously, I, I fell back into a support system that didn't allow me to to drop any further down because yeah. I had parents that, that actually stepped in and intervened and did something about it. Whereas, I, you know, I, I believe that no young kids are born bad. They're just born into very difficult circumstances. And therefore, you know, quite chaotic backgrounds, quite chaotic families, whether there's either violent abuse, drug abuse, poor parenting, all sorts of myriads of, of, of different social issues, generational unemployment, illiteracy, whatever it might be. And sport is an opportunity to allow that to, 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 to move forward. So we set up Rugby Works. We work with 14 to 17-year-old boys and girls that find themselves outside of mainstream education. Just to give a couple of quite worrying statistics, 65% of our prison population in the United Kingdom are made up of people who have been excluded from mainstream education, 65%. Yeah, staggering. So that is a frightening number. So once you, I mean, what's very clear in the current society is once you're excluded from mainstream, you're excluded from society as well. And, and I don't believe that, that that's the case. That should, be, that should be the case because every young person deserves opportunities and deserves a chance. And I guess if I was 14 again and I found myself in a really chaotic environment or you were, uh, you know, would we want someone to come in and help us? The answer is, yeah, of course you would. Therefore, that's what Rugby Works does. Um, you know, it's about taking young people on a journey and getting them into full-time employment and education. And, uh, yeah, I'm very passionate about it because yeah, yeah. I know how much rugby influenced my life uh, and therefore I know how much it can influence other people's and rugby was just a hook it wasn't really about sure. that. Was- well no i understand it's, it's that belonging sense isn't it but and i love what you said there about no one is born bad and that's the theme that i talk about a lot on here is as anyone who's a parent knows a baby comes out and they're so pure aren't they and then we are conditioned and we don't choose our genes we don't choose our physical attributes we don't choose our parenting we don't choose the country you know we don't choose anything and it's that sort of understanding of there but for the grace of god go i I think we are we are what we're exposed to in life good and bad if we're exposed to good things then good things tend to happen if you're exposed to bad things then you know the 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 opposite is the case and 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 i think um it's our duty to to help ourselves but equally you've got to help others as well and actually i think that the last few years with covid has exacerbated and probably, you know, made the problem 10 times worse. Because if you were a young person in, in a dire situation two or three years ago, imagine what you're like now. So I think there is a tsunami of issues coming over the hill, which we don't even know about because it's really hard to be a young person right now. And it's probably even harder now than it was two or three years ago. So, I mean, there, there's a huge investment that needs to be done in, in catching up with that and repairing some of the damage that's been done. So you say we are what we're exposed to. And what I find interesting is, you know, a lot of people take such personal credit for the successes they have without necessarily recognising that they had that support, that they had that expectation, they had loving family, they had good schooling, whatever it may be. 
and can look down on people who perhaps you know haven't had all those things and uh that sort of almost comes back to that ego ego stuff that I was talking about at the beginning about not believing your own hype too much because we could quite easily be in that tough position the likes of which the kids that you look after are in yeah absolutely but it's about recognizing that um you can you can give back um you know you can and there's one thing saying it there's another thing doing it as well actually I think that's the other, that's the other thing it's uh I think we're all fortunate. Um, well, certainly I found myself fortunate to have been given those things that I discussed earlier on around unconditional love and, and, and beliefs and and an opportunity to to go out and be successful and to try and give everything a go. My parents used to open as many doors as possible. Invariably, I'd slam them, you know, in their back in their face straight away. But hopefully I, I jumped through one door and I found it something I really enjoyed. So we should open as many doors and windows as, of, into opportunity in life as possible for young people uh, because everyone's good at something. Some of us are lucky enough to find out what it is. You know, you've got to try a whole different number of things before you eventually settle on something. But uh, if you don't have those opportunities or, or the opportunities that are presented to you are only bad ones or bad choices, then, you know, you go in a different direction. And I think we owe it to each other to be better than that, really. That stat you gave about what sixty eight percent of people in prison. Have you done any sort of lobbying or awareness raising around that? Because clearly yeah, that is such a big issue. Yeah, it is. Um, and you know, sixty five percent. Look, some people are are designed to be in mainstream education. I mean, I'm not suggesting that, but I mean, some of the reasons why people are excluded, young people are excluded, is can be um can be quite severe, but others can be quite tragic. You know. There's a lot of online bullying, for instance, that happens in uh, you know in young people now. So, you know, young girls are too afraid to go to school because they're being bullied, and therefore they then get excluded for absenteeism, and then things get well, you know, from better to, from worse to worse. So, you know, often the reasons behind exclusion, you know, so young people that we work with, you know, they're the primary carers in their own home sometimes. You know, they're looking after you know younger siblings, whatever it might be. So. You know, Jason Robinson openly talks about his life in the same way. You know, he was one of those young people that we worked with. Uh, and look what happened to him. You know, he used to come home to a myriad of sorts of problems, you know, at, at home. So, yeah, I, I really do. I do feel for, for those people. And the program we run, it could be, I mean, it's rugby for us, but rugby is the hook. It's about giving people self-esteem, self-respect, life skills, taking them on a journey, CV writing, uh, interview techniques, and ultimately signposting them into into full-time employment education, we have an 85% success rate with those young people. Awesome. So yeah. 65% are going to prison, which is costing you and I and the taxpayers, I don't know, about £135,000 per person. Putting money into this program, which might be, I don't know, two and a half to £3,000 per person per year, 85% success rate the other way. So you don't need to do much lobbying, really. No. Unfortunately, uh, governments don't, really um, listen to very much other than the what, what what might get them voted in the short term with all due respect uh, so yeah it's been a, it's been a challenge um, but uh, you know we're still here uh, you know however many 12 12 13 14 years later 15 years later um, and and intend to be around in the future as well yes and I hope it goes from strength to strength and look we've got a, a mutual friend running the Marathon des Sables which is a, a lunatic race out in the Sahara what like six marathons in six days double marathon on the fourth day Simon Dent's his name am I right in saying he have a social fixer back in the Wasps days well I mean he, he, he wouldn't class, he wouldn't call himself a failed fly half like, like you did uh, he was a um, he was a I think a rugby player football player but yeah he, he found himself being a uh, being in charge of most of the most of the London nightclubs, I think, or the guest list for most of the London nightclubs. So it's amazing how he became very popular. 
Um, <laughs> then I think he became a lawyer, then a sports agent, which he's still an agent now to the likes of, you know, Warren Gatland, Chris Kamara, yeah, yeah, and and etc. Uh, I think he had a brief stint in memorabilia. So again, we're all good at something. Some of us find out what it is, but uh, he's doing brilliantly now and he's always been running clearly, but, uh, you know, the challenges he's taken on of late, I mean, he oh, yeah, I know. went into marathons, then ultra marathons, and now he's doing the Marathon de Sable, which I couldn't even contemplate, really. It's really tough. And he's doing it for the Greenhouse Charity, which is obviously, you know, for looking after young young kids and also for, for rugby works as well. So credit to him. I don't know how he puts his body through that much pain. But yes, going back to your original question, he did. He was the godfather of the, yeah. of the 40 <laughs> nightclub industry, I think is basically the way. Can you just paint a little picture then? Paint a little picture of a, of a night out that Simon would have teed up that you would have then taken full advantage of. You know, keep it clean. Well, I mean, listen, if, if you're born in London, you're born in life, I think is Oscar Wilde's expression. You know, we might uh, we might have been playing an away game. I mean, obviously, the, the most important thing is, going back to the original questions on the pod, you have to win, right? You, there's no going out if you lose, just so we're clear. Um Hence, you have to have at least a 75% ratio. Otherwise, there's no going out, is there? So, you know, best laid plans and all that. If you lose, you do not go out. Uh, you know, I can guarantee now, if I'd have lost that World Cup final, I would I would not not have been hitting the, the, the nightclubs and bars of of, uh, of Sydney for four nights. Um, so, yeah, winning is the priority. And Simon Dead couldn't have an enormous influence on that, really. Although he might, he might have told the lads what 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 was in store if they did win and that might provide no listen getting a getting a group of uh, you know everyone's got their own choices after you know when you but occasionally you have to keep the team together and I think what Simon was very good at was uh, was ensuring that um, that we kept the team together because uh, uh, you know it was always difficult to uh, to get uh, you know a handful of very large men into a, into one establishment because funny enough the security tends to get a little bit twitchy uh, <laughs> outside of it you know please don't smash the place up honestly <laughs> what are you going to do about it you know that's hard yeah. yeah 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 no, no, I, I think yeah, he, he was very uh, he was very good at doing that and look as I said we would we would celebrate long and hard but but back to work the following day or, or, the, or, or certainly the day after that yeah and I will link obviously to Simon's fundraising page for the Marathon de Sable and you know having done a bit of research into, into that race I mean it is bonkers it seems to attract a certain type of yeah, person they, and Crazy, crazy. I mean, it's hard enough running, let alone in the sand. Yeah. Let alone in extreme heat. Yeah. I mean, you know, Insane. Yeah. Last couple of questions then, Lawrence. I heard you recently say that Johnny Wilkinson wouldn't make your all-time starting 11. Sent shockwaves through the rugby community. What's the reaction been? And do you stand by that? I don't think it does, does it? I mean, uh, <laughs> I uh, you know, I look at my teammates when they name their all-time England 15, and I, and I don't feature in it, but I don't pick up the phone and start <laughs> I, I don't need to sleep over it. I mean, you know, it's 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 an opinion, really. It's not always based on on uh, on on numbers and data. You know, it's, it's I don't know. I mean, who did I pick in there? Owen Farrell, Farrell probably. Farrell. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Farrell was my son's babysitter. What can I say? I mean, okay, yeah. so that was the thing that edged it. Fair, fair point. Yeah. I think they they cut from a similar cloth, aren't they? Owen and Johnny, in many ways. Uh, yeah, I think they are. You know, Johnny's a, Johnny's an amazing rugby player, and, and you know, and I, I've got the utmost respect for him. He, he's he's phenomenal, but. Uh, there's only can only have one in each team, one one in each position, can't you? Really, a big finale, Lawrence. Who's the best rugby player you've ever played against or with? The person that changed the game was Jonah Lomu, really. Um, for me, you couldn't you couldn't not look at it, look at that and just go, wow, 
I mean, that's like um, one of those sort of uh, Hollywood movies where you just get so, you know, it's like a superhero, and he was enormous. I mean, yeah. you know, speed of lip for Christie and the size of, you know, in the size of, of the skyscraper. I mean, he was huge. He changed the game. But listen, he scored against us in 99. Um, Twice, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, in that game, yeah. This is, I was, I was caught the flagging, actually, uh, to go and tackle him. And I thought, if I slow down, I might just miss him. But I didn't. I was running, and I thought, shit, I'm going to have to tackle him. And just, just, to, just as he was about to score, and he was about to score, and I got pushed in the back. I didn't realise it was by Jeff Wilson, one of Jonah Lavery's teammates, and he pushed me in the back. And as I was running, he scored, and the, the sort of momentum from the push meant I punched him straight in the nose. Now, clearly, not on purpose. No, no idiot in their right mind would punch Jonah Lavery in the nose. All I remember is I thought, what's happened there? And I punched him in the nose. Anyway, he scored, and as he got up, it was like a volcano because his nose was like pouring with blood <laughs> i thought shit what have i done <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't supposed to happen and no. Brian johnson who's, who's never really that funny certainly not on the field he turned around to me he said well done i said what's up he goes well now you've made him really angry <laughs> do you think loma would still stand out in today's game oh, i think so yeah i think so because i think the i mean he have obviously had that raw um, you know that that raw physical, you know, that God's God's gift of of of, uh, of size and athleticism and speed. But I think the modern day players now, there's so much opportunity to become even better, to train and to understand and to learn and to use all those physical attributes, but also combine with the recovery processes, the protocols that exist now, that the, the fitness and nutrition, the health and the all this the support system that exists around sports people, I think, is a little bit more advanced. And therefore, you'd think to yourself, the opportunity to become better uh, is, is always going to be there. If he was good then, imagine what he'd be like now. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the All Blacks would still be winning a lot of games of rugby, put it that way. Yeah. Star of the upcoming World Cup. That would be lovely to see him back, as it would you. Anyway, listen, Lawrence, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for all the memories. Like I say, I've got you marauding down towards the 22, seared in my mind. Congratulations all the Delalio Rugby Works. It's got such a lovely niche and it really sort of feels like it's rounded the circle because obviously you weren't a million miles from going a little bit off the rails yourself. So to, to, to do this, you know, it's, it's a lovely way of, of rounding the circle. Very kind. Uh, you know, as I said, I finished with that, with that quote you, you took from my mother, which is... Uh, you know, the best piece of advice I've ever been given from my, from my mum, Eileen, who I miss very sadly and very dearly, but she used to say, try and make every interaction uh, that you have with someone a positive interaction. Leave people in a better place than when you arrived. And I think uh, if you can do that in life, not easy to, easy to say, not easy to do, but if you can do that, then, uh, you know, you'll be doing okay. Thank you for listening to this episode with Lawrence Delalio. Do get in touch with any questions, thoughts or suggestions via my website, simonmundy.com. I've got some interesting plans to share with you too soon, so please do hit subscribe to keep up to date with those. I'll be back with another bite-sized episode on Friday and next week's full-length conversation will be with a man recognised as one of the 100 most influential people in the world by Time magazine and someone who is right at the forefront of the renaissance of psychedelic medicines. His name is Michael Pollan. But for now, goodbye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, 
Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.